0: Jackie and I got married 31 and a half years ago. Uh, Oh, okay. Thank you very much. I'll tell her later that I mentioned that and you all applauded me. Because she's not here, but I'll pass it on to her. For our honeymoon, we went to Switzerland, to a little village called Vegas on the edge of Lake Lucerne, in the shadow of the Alps. There are mountains all around the place, as you would expect in Switzerland, peak after peak after peak. The New Testament is all elevated ground. There's no low points in the New Testament. And in this Just Jesus series, we've been looking at some of the mountain peaks, one peak after another in the New Testament that speaks about just how remarkable Jesus really is. Today, I'd suggest to you that we are looking at arguably the highest peak of all in the New Testament. In its scope and eloquence, this is just about the most remarkable few sentences ever written about Jesus, our humble King. It comes from Philippians chapter 2. I'll read it to you. It'll be on the screen. Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, saying, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, by which way, by the way, he's not saying if you have. It's a bit like, you know, if you've got air in your lungs, sing or speak. He's you know They, they have got these things happening amongst them. Then he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Hopefully, you know by now, in reading the New Testament, those of you who do, that any you see a therefore, as we've got at the start of this chapter here in verse 1, it always reminds us to connect what's being said with what's been said. There's a deliberate connection there. Well, what the, the situation here is that Paul, the writer, is in prison for his faith. And the readers, the church in Philippi, are having trouble two and if we were to go back to chapter 1 verse 27 we find the connection to this therefore in chapter 2 verse 1 here 127 he says whatever happens conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ by which he's meaning keep yourselves united don't let what's happening to me don't let what's happening to you distract you from being united together in faith. So, in 2 verse 1, therefore, in view of all of that, and given that you've got all those things he stated at the beginning there, be united in heart and mind, preferring one another above yourselves. Paul says in this passage, we just read it, I'm in chains, but I tell you what, my joy will be absolutely complete. If you can stand together firm in faith. But he's not just simply saying, hold on to Jesus in your difficult time. It's hold on to one another as you hold on to faith. In fact, how you hold on to faith is by holding on to one another, by being united. And there's a profound biblical challenge there that we find right throughout the Bible. And it's this. That the vertical, if I can put it this way, must impact the horizontal. Our faith and trust in Jesus counts for very little if it doesn't end up affecting and transforming how we relate to one another. It won't do to say, I'm fine with God, it's just those blasted people. That doesn't work at all. They are intricately, intimately connected. Michael Eaton wrote this. It is easy to fool oneself about loving God, but it is not too easy to fool oneself about loving people. One might think one is loving God. The real test is whether it leads to a love of people. That's deeply provoking. Or think of the famous 1 Corinthians 13 chapter that goes on to speak about love is patient, love is kind, and so on and so on. Well, it begins with saying some outrageous things. You know the the Bible's full of outrageous things. Here's an extraordinary thing the Bible says. Great words without love count for nothing. Great actions without love count for nothing. Great faith in God without love is nothing. Great acts for God without love will get you nil points. It's deeply provoking and deeply shocking. It won't do to say I'm fine with God, it's just those people. No, our love for God, our life with him must become a life with one another. But then you've got to ask this question, how do we know what such a life looks like? How do we know what being united in love... How do we know what preferring one another looks like in practice? Well, I want you to notice where Paul goes for his cue here. He doesn't find some great story of someone who's done some philanthropic stuff in his society. He doesn't go there. He goes to verse 5, In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He's not just saying to them, it's really good for you to be united. You really should be nice to one another. It's a good thing to do. You really should look out for one another. He's not simply and only saying that. He's saying, be like Jesus. Because New Testament ethics are never simply humanitarian. They're always Christ-centered, Christ-inspired, Christ-like. And then you start asking this question, so what was he like? If we're to be united with one another, if that means being like Christ, preferring one another, then you've got to ask the next question, so what was he like? And his answer, Paul's answer in this mountain peak of verses 6 to 11 is without parallel. As Paul presents to us our humble king. Most scholars agree, not everybody, but most scholars agree that in verses 6 to 11, what Paul is doing is he's not making stuff up here off his own back. He is quoting a hymn or a poem or a creedal statement used in the early church. That's why it's set out differently in your Bibles there. Who was Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Maybe you've come along today, you're not a Christian, yet you think, you're wondering, who is this Jesus? He was, and he is, verse 6, in very nature, God. In very nature is an English translation of the Greek word morphe. New Testament was originally written in Greek. Morphe is, is... It's like a root where we get words like metamorphosis from, or we might say something morphed into something else. It means to change from one thing to another, but that's not what's being said here. That's not what this word means here at all. Rather, it means this. He was in very nature God. doesn't mean he changed into God. It means he always was. He really was the real deal at very essence. He is God. Nothing less. Fully and truly God. Jesus, was he a great teacher? Yes, he was. Was he a remarkable prophet? Yes, he was. Is he the most perfect example we could ever look to for anything? Yes, he was. But not only a teacher, not only a prophet. You can't limit him to a good moral example because he was and is in very nature God, nothing less. Which is what the rest of the New Testament affirms of course throughout John 1 verse 1 in the beginning was the word talking of Jesus and the word was with god so there's a distinction you know hence the trinity and the word was god you remember that Jesus appeared to the disciples a number of times after he'd been raised from the dead and uh, one time He appeared to 10 of the disciples. Judas had killed himself. There were 11 left. He appeared to 10 of them. Thomas wasn't there. A week later, he appears again, and Thomas is now here. Thomas, who said, I won't believe unless I can see that he really is alive again, exclaimed on seeing Jesus, on touching the holes where the nails were and where the spear went in his side, on seeing the alive again, really risen Jesus, said this, my Lord and my God. Now, you won't understand this, but to a Jew, of all people, that was an outrageous statement. The Jews believed in one God. Other cultures had hundreds and thousands of God. The Romans could have as many as they wanted. The Greeks could have as many as they could. Eastern religions could have as many as they want. But the Jews, the Jewish nation, had one God the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now, as Jesus is risen from the dead, they're declaring, Thomas is declaring, that he is not only Lord, teacher, prophet, example, he is God. And notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say to Thomas, oh, the Lord bit was fine, but steady on a bit. <laughs> steady on a bit. Do you know, do you know the heresy that you're, you, you're declaring just now, calling me God? Jesus is not saying that. Jesus himself knew, of course, what the New Testament explains to us, that he is fully, truly, in very nature, almighty God. As if that wasn't amazing enough. Listen to this. Verse 7. The one who was eternally God, in very nature, God, verse 7 took the very nature, same Greek word morphe, of a servant or a slave being made in human likeness. I don't know anything more extraordinary, outrageous, amazing, astounding that has ever been communicated to humankind that the one who was in very nature God, fully, completely, he is almighty God, also takes to himself the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. John 1.14, the word Became flesh. Jesus was the most human human being who ever lived. Hungry, thirsty, tired at times in pain, invariably joyful, amazed at times, overwhelmed with sorrow at others, needing space from people at times, wanting company at others, angry, compassionate. He was real deal God, and now he's real deal human being, the most human human being who has ever lived. This, this is something that, though many of us may be familiar with it, It is completely mind-bending and completely mind-blowing. You know those people who send you a text message or WhatsApp message, and they always love to include an emoji. Some people are just emoji fans, aren't they? I haven't quite got there yet. Maybe, Maybe I'll get there one day. Well, one of Bernie's favorites on the staff WhatsApp chat is this one. She likes to picture herself with her brain exploding, mind-blowing. It must be there somewhere. Oh. It's this picture of Bernie's face, and the top of her head has blown off. Something is extraordinary, mind-bending, mind-blowing. This truth that the one in very nature God is also in very nature man it's utterly mind bending and mind blowing. It's like trying to understand the Trinity. Has anyone worked that out yet? Yeah. You have. Please give me the answer later because <laughs> I'm still wrestling with it. Jesus didn't replace one morphe, in very nature, God, for another being made human. He was and is fully both. See, his divinity and his humanity weren't stuck together like two halves of, you know, two blocks of wood being put together. He wasn't one sometimes and then another. Oh, Jesus is divine today. He's having a good day. Next day, oh, he seems a bit angry. It must be his human side coming out. It's not like that. It's not one one time and another the other, nor was he a diluted mixture of divinity and humanity to become something new and different, some amalgamation of the two. A bit like mixing red and yellow gives you orange. It's not red anymore. It's not yellow anymore. It's a different thing. It's called orange. Or to put it another way, he is neither Superman or Spider-Man. Superman, as you'll know, was a non-human being called Kal-El from the planet Krypton who appeared to be mild-mannered Clark Kent, occasionally revealing his superpowers. A non-human appearing as a human. Spider-Man, on the other hand, was a man, a human. Peter Parker, who acquired supernatural powers, spider-related abilities, following a bite from a radioactive spider. Jesus is not Superman. (laughs) Jesus is not Spider-Man. He is fully, at the very same time, Paul is telling us, in very nature God and in very nature man. Neither one diluting the other, neither one contradicting the other, neither both just being a bit of an amalgamation of the two. He is fully and completely, in very nature, both. And we can put it this way too. The one who was eternally in very nature God added to himself the very nature of a human being. So it says, verse 6, being in very nature God, he took also the very nature of a servant. The one he always was from eternity, the son of God, fully God. And now he is and always will be fully God And fully man and though he was verse 8 found in appearance as a man he was no less God among us as a man one theologian says this all the qualities and powers that are in us as well as all the qualities and powers that are in God were are and ever will be present in this one person Jesus so can I encourage you to hold the seesaw in balance? If you say, Jesus must have been fully God way down that side. So he couldn't have been really fully man. He must have just been, you know, a bit like Superman, appearing to be a man. Or if you go the other way, the Spider-Man way, uh, way and say he was fully man with some superpower, Really holy guy. Really good example. What a teacher. What a prophet. A superman in that sense, like Spider-Man, then you've gone out of kilter. Let me help you. Let me urge you to fully and completely weigh down on both ends. Is Jesus fully God? Yes, in very nature, God. Is he fully man? Yes, in full nature, man too. And in so doing... I mean, Paul's language here is extraordinary. And in so doing, verse 7 he made himself nothing. Or some other older translations say, he emptied himself. What what does it mean? What does it mean to say that he made himself nothing? What does it mean that he emptied himself? Well, You've got to be careful with phrases like that to not misunderstand them. See, when it says he made himself nothing, it can't be that he wasn't God anymore. Because Paul's just said he's in fully nature God. So he hasn't lost his divinity. He never ceased to be what he always was, king, God. But he voluntarily limited himself in certain ways necessary to the taking of the nature of a servant. So things like this. He made himself nothing in that he subjected himself to life on this dusty planet. Think about that. He has lived for all eternity with no beginning in the glory of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he makes himself to live on a dusty planet with us. Think of this. He became dependent on his father at every turn. Never been dependent. Now he's made himself dependent. He confined himself to one body, one time, one place in space at any particular point. He allowed himself. Think of this. He's God in making himself nothing. He allows himself to be subject to people. The Romans are ruling in the area. He becomes subject to them. He makes himself subject to Jewish leaders. He allows himself to be humbled and made subject to Pilate, to Herod, to the strange disciples around him who are messing up all the time. He immerses himself right down into them. He was frequently tested and tempted. He agreed to be forsaken by the Father on the cross. His glory and power were on display, but at least partially veiled. One writer said this, to speak of he emptied himself means not by subtraction of deity, but by addition of humanity. He added to himself full nature of man. But to go to verse six, we can grasp what's going on in Jesus' mind. And this is, it's like each bit gets more and more extraordinary. What's going on? This one who is God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, not something to be used to his own advantage. Think of that. Though he is God, he didn't hold tight to his privileges as God. He didn't use his deity to his own advantage, but for ours. He didn't use... His God nature to his own advantage, but for you, for me. Think of it. Why is he, in very nature, God, taking on the nature of a servant? He's doing that for you. He's doing it for me. He's not holding tight. I'm God. There's no way I'm going to serve anyone. No, he lowers himself, taking on that nature for us, for our good. What an amazing God we have that he would do that. Verse eight continues and says, he humbled himself. I don't know, I find that difficult. (laughs) Maybe you don't. I find that difficult. God is humbling himself for my advantage. I can understand that he died for me I can understand he forgives. I'm struggling, I'm wrestling with understanding this concept, that he humbles himself and takes on the nature of a slave for my advantage. It's utterly wonderful. One of, one of the most shocking, extraordinary displays of Jesus' humility in the Gospels is in John 13. They're all gathered together, and Jesus takes off his, his outer garment, and he washes the disciples' feet Imagine he comes to you today. Jesus comes and washes your feet. And yet he goes further still. Verse 8, he humbled himself for us by becoming obedient to death. Even death on a cross. He lowers himself. He humbles himself to the most humiliating and cursed death imaginable in the Jewish world. Death. On a cross. The king, this king, not only suffers the indignity of stripping off his outer clothing to wash his disciples' dirty, stinking, dust covered feet, but on the cross he suffers the supreme indignity of being fully stripped to wash our dirty, stinking, sin covered souls. Praise his name that he should go to such lengths for your advantage. And back to the first section, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, therefore, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. We marvel at what he's done. And aren't you inspired by his example Jesus is saying to me, he's saying to you, Paul is writing to you, he's writing to me to say, just as Jesus didn't use his advantages for his own gain, but gave them up, didn't cling tight to those for your advantage. Folks, he's saying this, here's what unity looks like. It looks like this, that you emulate him and give up your advantages for the good of others. I wonder when I last did that. When did I last do that with my money, with my car, with my house, with my talents, with whatever little I have to offer? To humble oneself like he did. What is this humility? I haven't even defined it yet. It's probably best described by C.S. Lewis's famous quote, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Jesus didn't have to think less of himself. He knew who he was. He's fully God. And yet he thinks of himself less in thinking of others more for our advantage. I want to ask you a question. Where does that practically land for you? Here's Jesus, fully God, who makes himself nothing to serve us. Where does that land for you in practice? Maybe it's at home. Maybe you're really struggling to prefer the other at home. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe it's in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in your social setting. I don't know. But where does this land for you? Where is Jesus saying to you? Where is Paul writing to us and saying, just as Jesus did have his mindset where you are? You just close your eyes for 30 seconds. I'm just going to ask, Holy Spirit, Would you please reveal to each of us where this lands to have your mindset, humble king? I don't want you to take 10 seconds just to say, God, I own that. Fill me with power to live that out from here on. But that is not the end of the story. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is where history is going. Seasons come and seasons go. Regimes come and regimes go. Leaders come and leaders are toppled. Let me tell you where it's all going, though. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father. Because he humbled himself to death, even death on a stinking, degrading Roman cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. Let's imitate Jesus, shall we? Let's prefer the other. And let's remember the end of the story where it's all going. One day, all will acknowledge him as king. So let's stand and let's acknowledge that he is king now. In practice of that great day when all of creation will submit to his great name. What a great, humble king we have, eh? hey? Praise his name.